Our passage is mostly 2 Samuel 7, so you can find 2 Samuel 7. We're going to look around at a few other verses uh, in the Old Testament, but that's where we're really going to camp out. We have seen week to week in this study of David um, somebody who is very much like you and me, somebody who lived on a spiritual roller coaster. He had days where he was up and he had days where he was down, and we've tried to be as honest as we can each week. When we see things in David's life that are not praiseworthy uh, or noble, we acknowledge that. We don't look to David as our Messiah. When we see things that are exemplary and worth uh, following, David's example, we want to acknowledge that too, and tonight would be one of those things. Tonight, we're talking about a time in David's life when God told him no. That happens in the Bible. From time to time, if you've read through the scriptures, uh, there is a story about Moses as he had brought the people out from Egypt and he had wandered through the wilderness with them. He had seen his brother and his sister pass away. He had seen all of that Exodus generation die and be buried in the wilderness. He, He walked and marched the people of Israel right up to the edge of the promised land. They were just literally looking at it. From the plains of Moab across the Jordan, they could see it. And Moses knew God had told him, you're not going in because you did not uphold me as holy in the sight of the people. And Moses, one last time, speaking to the Lord, said, please let me go in and see the land. And God said, no. And don't ask me about that again. Get Joshua ready. He's taking them in. You're not going in. You can think about the New Testament. The Apostle Paul talking about his thorn in the flesh. Pleading with the Lord. Once. Twice. Three times. Please remove this issue from my life. And God's saying, no. I'm not going to do that. I could do that. I'm not going to do that. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is is shown through your weakness. No, Paul, I'm not going to do that. You see this uh, in lots of people's lives. I thought of a few examples this week. I think one place you see it, God saying no, is in first-year seminary students. First-year seminary students. They know a lot. They know an awful lot. And they go to seminary, and they all have big plans, Big dreams, big visions of what their church is going to be like, what their ministry is going to be like, what their uh, mission field experience is going to be like, whatever it is. And you just look down the road, you look at all of those prayers that were uttered to the Lord, please do this, please do this, please do this through me. And sometimes God says, no, I'm not going to do that, or I'm not going to do it in that way. I remember very distinctly when we first moved to Louisville, we lived at an apartment complex on the campus. Uh, There was about six or seven other couples that moved into that complex at the exact same time. About a month in, we all got together, and I can remember sitting in that living room listening to those guys talk about, this is what God's called me to do. This is what I'm going to do in ministry. This is what, what the Lord has burdened me with. And all of these plans, all of these dreams, all of these visions None of the people who sat in that room that night, except me, are in ministry today. And that's no credit to me, 
That's just to say that's an example of people who had all of these plans, good plans. You understand they weren't saying, I want to be a billionaire and take advantage of people. I want to start a a meth empire and run the streets of my hometown. These are people saying, "I, I want to do great things for the kingdom praying that God would do that, and it didn't happen. Um, New pastors. When a new pastor comes to town, I always try to reach out to them, take them to lunch, introduce myself, welcome them to town. And it's my experience that new pastors have all sorts of plans for their church. These are the problems at my new church. This is what the last guy did wrong at my new church. This is how I'm going to fix it at my new church. And then maybe you go to lunch with those guys two, three, four, five years down the road and you realize some of those prayers had not been answered. You've experienced this in your life. The Bible says to cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. So you come to the Lord and you say, I'm burdened with this and I'm asking you to do this and I need you to do, to do that and I'm trusting your power is sufficient to take care of this situation. And sometimes God says, No. It's interesting to me that we had a snow night. This was the message last week. We saved it one week. This week, from last Wednesday to tonight, I've talked with five or six people who have told me stories, different situations, some church members, some not church members, some in Odessa, some outside of Odessa, but told me stories, things going on in their life right now where they said, God is seemingly telling me no, and I'm frustrated and I'm discouraged, and I don't understand it, and I'm trying to process what God may be doing in my life in this moment. So look, when we look at this instance in David's life, and he's got a great plan, and God just says no, this is not just an old story from some ancient king in Israel. This is not just sort of a, uh, an interesting fable. This is real life stuff. And as we talk about David's plans and God's saying no to him, your task tonight is to be thinking, where's this playing out in my life? What is it that I'm maybe asking the Lord for or have already asked the Lord for and he's seemingly saying no and am I going to respond like David responded here? There's something, something exemplary in David. We're going to see it tonight. So let's set the stage. Peterson helps us. Goliath is dead. Saul is dead. David is alive, very much alive writing a crest of popular acclaim and gratitude. Everything has come together in David. The office of king, which Saul messed up so badly, is rehabilitated by David. David is king, but he doesn't follow any of the current job descriptions of kingship. He isn't a proud royal head of state exercising power. He's an obedient servant representing and reporting on the sovereignty of God. David uses his throne as a pulpit from which to preach God's rule. That's where we're at in the life of David. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. The first thing I want you to see is this. Nathan approved David's plan to build a house for the Lord. David has a plan. He takes it to Nathan, and Nathan stamps it, right? Plans approved. You've got the green light. Go ahead on this project. Look at 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. It says, When the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, 
but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We'll just stop right there for a moment. Nathan approves the plans. Let's just remind ourselves about the ark. I showed you some of these pictures a few weeks ago. Uh, They give you a general idea of what the ark possibly looked like. It wasn't very big. Uh, It was a relatively small wooden box coated with gold poles uh, through the ring so that you didn't touch it and you could carry it one Levite on each corner. We talked about the fact briefly that this ark had been carried into battle by Israel Israel was thinking, if we carry it in, we're guaranteed to win. They thought of it as a a magical amulet or a good luck charm of some sort. They thought it had some sort of magical properties. They carry it into battle. The Philistines win the battle. They take the ark, and Israel goes home with their tail tucked between their legs. While the Philistines have the ark, God is perfectly capable of taking care of himself and the ark. There are no issues whatsoever. And when God is ready, he sends the ark through the hands of the Philistines back to Israel. And we talked about when the ark sort of rolls in and David's thinking, okay, what are we going to do with this thing? It's sort of just been sitting in retirement. No one knew what to do with it when it came back because the last time we tried to do anything with it, we lost it. So it's just sitting in this guy's house. David has a plan. I want to bring it into Jerusalem. We've solidified the kingdom. We've unified the kingdom. We're here in Jerusalem. We have a new capital. It only makes sense that the ark, God's throne, would be in the center of this nation. The idea was good. The execution was poor. And Uzzah lost his life. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Eventually, they get the ark to Jerusalem. And it's there. And it's housed in some sort of tent. And one day, when David doesn't have any battles to fight, his mind starts going, and he looks at his house, and he looks at the tent for the ark, and he starts to think, this doesn't seem quite right. And I think there's a couple of motivations in David's mind. On the one hand, the text simply just describes on surface level, he looks at the situation and he says, I live in a really nice house, the ark is in a tent, But God is more important than me, and he should probably have a nicer house than I have, and we need to do something to rectify this situation. He's concerned that God is not getting his due, essentially. I think there's probably, the text doesn't mention it, so you can quibble with me if you want to. I think there's probably another rationale or another motivation is that when David hears about all the other kings in their capital cities and their temples, all their holy places, they have really nice things. David has a tent. You can imagine if you have friends and they all have really nice cars and they come over to your house and out on the driveway you've got an old 86 Nova. You just kind of look at what everyone else has and you think, oh man, that, that's nicer than this. And there's a little bit of that. There's got to be a little bit of that for David. Not necessarily in a I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses sense, just in the sense of our God is greater than their gods, and look what their gods have. Our God has a tent. And David compares his house to the tent, and he knows something's not right. So Nathan shows up. It's the first time Nathan shows up in the story. It's not the last time 
that we'll read about Nathan. Nathan comes back into the story pretty soon. Nathan, the text says, is a prophet. I think it's safe to assume that as the prophet, people recognize Nathan holding this office. Nathan is used to people coming to him when they need something from God. I think that's a safe assumption. He's the prophet. Most of the time when people seek him out, they're seeking him out because they need something from God. You're the prophet. You have a special relationship with the Lord. Could you pray for me? Could you give me a word from God? I'm needing something from him. This is different. This is David going to Nathan, not asking for anything from God, but David going to Nathan wanting to do something for God. It's a little bit different than what Nathan was probably used to. And Nathan's response, we read it in verse 3, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. This is an interesting quote from Charles Swindoll. Think about this. He says, sometimes the dream is from God. Sometimes it's not. Both are noble. Both are great resolves. Both are ideals, but when it's not of God, it won't come to fulfillment, nor should it. And it's often hard to determine which is which. It's very hard. I can just tell you I had lunch with a guy today who has a desire, a a burning, just compulsion, calling, whatever you want to describe it as, to do a particular thing for the Lord. And circumstances are preventing him from doing that. And he's looking at the situation saying, Is God really calling me to do that and burdening me to do it? If he was, wouldn't he change the circumstances so that I could do it? Or is that just me wanting to do that? And I'm just telling you, when you find yourself in that situation in in life, it is very hard to tell which is which. And David's got a plan. He's got a dream. He's got a vision. He's got an idea. He wants to do something for the Lord. And Nathan says, do all that's in your heart. He assumes that God's behind it, in this instance, he's not. It's not his plan. So that brings us to the next idea. Nathan stopped David's plan to build a house for the Lord. First he approved it, then he stopped it. Look at verse 4, 2 Samuel 7, verse 4. That same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and he says a lot of different things to David. If you look down in verse 17, that long paragraph ends with this. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. First he says, do what's in your heart, all that's in your heart. And then he has to go back and say, no, don't do that. God talked to me, and he's telling you, don't. Don't do what's in your heart. You understand, we're not talking about David and Bathsheba tonight. This is not David saying, I want to have an affair, and Nathan the prophet is saying, I think it's a bad idea. This is not David saying, well, I want to go murder some innocent people, and Nathan says, eh, you probably shouldn't. This is David saying, I want to build a house for the ark, for the presence of the Lord. It's a good thing. It's a noble thing. It's a God-honoring thing, and Nathan says, no, don't do it. Peterson says this, Nathan Went back to David in the morning. He withdrew the building permit. God showed Nathan that David's building plans for God would interfere with God's building plans for David. And it's just interesting to me. Why didn't God just let him do it? 
This guy wants to do it. He's eager. He's excited. He's got time on his hands. He's got the resources. He sort of comes up with the idea himself as he looks at this situation. It seems like a no-brainer. You would just let him do it. And I'm going to give you all the biblical clues that I can give you as to why God didn't let him. And I'm not going to really give you an answer. But I'm going to give you the clues. Okay? Here's the clues. I'll put them up on the screen. According to Solomon, God's no was not based on improper motives. Okay? Not based on improper motives. So maybe you look at it and God says no through Nathan and you think, maybe there was something secret in David's heart. Maybe there's something nefarious and evil and wicked and selfish and man-centered going on. And we didn't see it on the surface, but God saw it, and that's why God said no. And the Bible says that's not the case. It wasn't that there was anything secret going on. You can look at 2 Chronicles 6, 7 to 9. It's Solomon dedicating the temple that he built. And Solomon says, it was in my father David's heart to do this. And the Lord said, the fact that it was in your heart is good. Just wrap your brain around that. David wants to build the temple. It's in his heart. God knows it's in his heart. And God is saying, David, that's a great idea. Don't do it. I think any one of us who would come up with something that we wanted to do for the Lord and say, I want to do this for God, would fully expect God to get on board with our plans. I've had friends who have very much wanted to go into missions, to the mission field. I so badly want to go to the mission field. And circumstances, whatever they may be, prevent them from doing that. Say, so it's a good thing that it's in your heart to want to go to the mission field. And for some reason, God says, no, don't go. That's God's prerogative to do that. He did it in this situation. So it wasn't improper motives. Secondly, according to David, God's no was based on David's life as a man of war. Look at 1 Chronicles 22. I just want you to see this quickly. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8. The word of the Lord came to me. This is David speaking. You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. There's a lot in that sentence that I can't fully explain to you. You look at that verse and you say, was David wrong to fight against the Philistines? Because it sure seemed like God wanted him to do that. Is God mad at him for now fighting the enemies of Israel? I, I don't think so. Is God referring to the seasons of David's life where he lived amongst the Philistines and fought other people and lied about it? I, I don't know. The verse just says, David speaking, God told him, you're not going to do this because you have shed a lot of blood. You've been a man of war and this is not your job to do. According to the Bible, this is also important, God's no did not stop David from helping. He wasn't going to build it. And there was a temptation that David faced in this moment when God said, no, you're not doing it, to be like a child and to go sit in the corner of Jerusalem and fold his arms and say, well, fine. See if I ever try to do anything nice for you again. just wanted to build you a house. To get you out of that tent, he's trying to be helpful. He doesn't do that. 
He says, if I'm not going to do it, I'm going to contribute as much as I can to the effort. Someone else is going to do it. Solomon's going to do it. If I'm not going to be a part of building it, I'm going to get it all ready. And you can read in 1 Chronicles 22 and 29 all the materials that are gathered up, the plans that are made so that Solomon is ready to go when it's his turn to build it. Here's what you see in David. He's more interested in the temple being built than he is in himself building the temple. Just think about that in your life when you're praying about something and God says no. In this instance, David is more passionate and committed to seeing it done eventually than to the idea that he would do it himself for God. And the question that we may have to wrestle with when we find ourselves in one of these situations is, is it okay with us if God decides to accomplish our dreams and visions and hopes and desires through someone else? Is that okay with you? Do you have to be at the center of it? Do I have to be at the center of it? Or are we good if God says, I'm not going to use you or your family or your church or your denomination, but I'm going to use somebody else? Is that okay with us? In this instance, David has to wrestle with that, and he comes out, I think, okay with it. I want you to see what God says to David. We looked at Nathan showing up and Verse 17, where it says, Nathan said all of these things. I want to talk about the middle, okay? 2 Samuel 7, 5 to 16. This is the longest monologue from the Lord since Moses was around. That's been a long time. God has said things. He's spoken to his people. But this is the longest thing God has said since Moses was around. 197 words. Just as a little piece of Bible Jeopardy trivia for you. David's response to God's 197 words, 198 words. So, maybe that was David's subtle way of getting the last word or feeling like he got the last word. I don't think that's it. I think that's the biblical authors showing you God's response is important. David's response to God's response is also important. There's truth in both of those things, and we need to hear both of them. So let's talk about God's response. God wanted to establish his sovereignty in the minds of his people. Is one of the things that's in the mix, in the pot, in the stew, as God says, no, David, you're not going to do it. He wants to establish his sovereignty, not David's sovereignty. Remember, he's a great king. They had Saul, he was a train wreck, now they have David, it's all great, and God wants to establish at this critical moment, don't put your hope in David, put your hope in me, and he's trying to establish that. So look at 2 Samuel 7 verse 5, go and tell my servant David, not go and tell David the king, go and tell David the prince, go and tell David as he sits on his throne, Go and tell David. Which David? My slave, David. The one who does what I tell him to do. That's the one you're going to talk to. David, my servant. Go tell David, my servant. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to live in? I've not lived in a house 
since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince. There's that term, prince. You would be the prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When you read those verses, God is the subject of all the verbs. The emphasis in God's response is, wait a minute, David, I brought you out from Egypt. I fought the battles for you. I cut your enemies off. I've done everything. David, you really haven't contributed much to this at all. I'm the one who's been doing it all. And then he shifts to the future tense and he says, I'm going to be the one doing it in the future. And he's saying this to David as much as he's saying it to the people of Israel, as much as he's saying it to us. And what he's saying is, I don't really need you to do anything for me. Do you remember when the ark was in Philistia? I took care of it. I knocked Dagon down, knocked his arms off, knocked his feet off. I gave those people cancer when they tried to handle the ark. I brought it back when I was ready to bring it back. I can take care of myself. I don't need you to do anything for me. So he's establishing his sovereignty. Secondly, he promises to build a house for David. We just read that verse Verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And let's read down to verse 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. In your house, in your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Let me tell you a story about these verses. How many of you have heard of John MacArthur, preacher? at Grace Community Church in California. When I was in high school, uh, into my high school years, I got a job as a custodian at my church. One of the things I did was paint all the rooms, just one at a time, painting these Sunday school rooms. And somebody at our church at some point had donated a massive cassette library of John MacArthur uh, sermons to our church. And that's what I listened to while I was painting. Painting walls, rolling walls, painting trim, listening to these sermons. 
all day long. MacArthur tells a really, really funny story. He was a seminary student, and at his seminary, each semester, one student would be selected to preach in chapel. Sort of a put your name in the mix, and if you get picked, you get to preach in chapel. Why any seminary student would ever want to preach in chapel, I have no idea. That's the last place I would want to preach as a seminary student. But he puts his name in the mix. He gets picked. They assign him a passage, and they say, you are going to preach 2 Samuel 7, the verses that we just read, God making this promise to David. So he goes, and he studies. And he works and he works. He says, I, mean, I put everything I had into that sermon. I was so nervous because it, it was my professors in the room and fellow students in the room. And they're so critical of what you might say or how you might say it. And so he says, I worked so, so hard. This is his description. He said, I, I had a zinger at the beginning and a zapper at the end. And he said the service was over, the chapel service was over, and he was sort of standing over on the side, and his friends came by and said, hey, that was great, you did a really good job. And some of the professors came by and said, hey, that was fantastic. Two thumbs up, way to go, John. He didn't care about any of those people. He cared about his mentor, his supervisor, Dr. Charles Feinberg. He was a Messianic Jew. Feinberg had studied for 14 years to become a rabbi, and then he'd converted to Christianity. He spoke, Feinberg, more than 30 languages. He read the Bible multiple, multiple times every year. Just an absolutely brilliant guy. Obviously, with his cultural background, the Old Testament was right in his wheelhouse. And really, all MacArthur says he cared about is, what's Feinberg going to say? So everybody comes by and, good job, that was great, funny story, that was awesome. And he's looking at Feinberg, and Feinberg is looking at the ground. He won't look at him. And he says, I kept shuffling his way, and every shuffle I got a little more nervous and a little more anxious. And I get right up to him, and he said, he wouldn't even look at me. He just gave me a piece of paper, folded up, and walked off. And he said, I, I couldn't open it in front of everybody. So I took it, went to an office or a library somewhere, opened it up, and this is what the note said. You missed the point of the passage. You missed the whole point of the passage. You had a great zinger, good zapper at the end, but you completely missed the point of the passage. This was the passage he was preaching. And Feinberg's point to MacArthur is, This is not just a passage about how you respond when God says no. This is really a passage about the idea that God doesn't need his people to do anything for him. God is the sovereign God who saves his people and who makes promises to his people. And Feinberg was upset with MacArthur because he missed the fact that these verses are about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And he said, you completely missed it. You had a lot of great points, but you missed Jesus. So I don't even know why you got up there. Look at this quote from Robert Bergen. The significance of the eternal covenant between the Lord and David for the New Testament writers cannot be overemphasized. He's talking about these verses And he says, the importance of these verses in the New Testament, I cannot overemphasize it. 
Whatever I would say about it, I can't make it more important than it really is. The Lord's words recorded here are arguably, or they arguably play the single most significant role of any scripture found in the Old Testament in shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus. If you read them and you miss Jesus, you miss the whole point. So you look at these verses, verse 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And initially, you say, okay, God's talking about Solomon here. And if you say that, you're right. He is talking about Solomon. And he says, he's, he's the one that's going to build the temple, the one who comes from you, and his kingdom is going to be great. And when he sins, he's going to be disciplined. Not if, but when he sins, he's going to be disciplined. Even though I discipline him, I'm not going to remove my love like I did from Saul. I'm committed. I'm in. But when he sins, there's going to be a consequence. So you say, well, that's about Solomon. Yes. It's also about Jesus. It's the true son of David who builds a true temple. Not just a building, but a true dwelling place. For the Spirit of the Lord. He's building that right now. I'm going to build my church. Paul tells the Corinthians, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about a building anymore. It's you. The Spirit is living inside of you individually and corporately. He's the King of Kings. He was disciplined with the rods of men, the stripes of men, not for his sins, but for ours. Even that part of the prophecy came true. He was disciplined for our sins, and his throne and his kingdom will last forever. This is confirmed all through the New Testament. The New Testament confirms Jesus is the true son of David, promised in 2 Samuel 7. Everything God is saying to David here is not just about Solomon, but it's ultimately pointing you forward to Jesus. And I just gave you a few verses in Revelation that talk about Jesus being the root of of David, Jesus being the, the offspring of David. And those verses are all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the New Testament. So just get the scene in your mind. David starts out and he says, I'm going to build a house for God. Nathan says, do it. David goes to sleep. He wakes up the next day. Nathan walks in and says, no more temple. Not you, at least. And this is what God told me. He's going to do something through you. He doesn't want you to build him a house. He's going to build you a house. So don't do it. If you're David, how do you respond? David embraced the promises and the plans of God, and he responds with worship. I'll give you some specifics, but the big idea is that he responds with worship. Here are the, the details. Number one, he listened. He listened. Number two, he sat. Really important. He listens, and then he sits. Look at 2 Samuel seven seventeen. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Verse 18. Then the king went in and sat before the Lord. He listens, and he sits. I like how some of these guys explain the significance of the sitting. Peterson says, David sat. It's an incredible feat when you begin to understand the conditions under which he did it. So full of desire 
for God he was, so bursting with plans for God. Stopping David in that condition was like reigning in a team of runaway horses, but Nathan stopped him. More accurately, David let himself be stopped by God. What we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we, in fact, do. And just to drive it home, make it abundantly clear, listen to Red Path. Has God said no to you? Has he said no? Then before you turn away, before there creeps into your life some resentment, just sit down before the Lord and think about his blessings. He listens to Nathan, and then he doesn't go out and do anything. He just goes and sits. That little verse, he goes and he sits, tells you, David got the message. I don't need you to do anything for me. I don't need you to take care of the ark. I don't need you to look out for me. In fact, I'm going to be looking out for you. I'm going to be protecting you. And David gets it, and he goes and he sits. Lastly, he prays. He listens, he sits, and he prays. Let's read what David says. 2 Samuel 7, 18. He sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God." And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant, David, will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever." That prayer is a model for you to pray. Right? The structure of that prayer is a beautiful, beautiful picture of how God's people ought to pray in any situation, but especially in a situation when God seemingly is saying no. Here's the pieces that you need to see. Number one, he prays with humility. Humility. He says, who am I? Who am I to have any claim on you? Who am I to receive any blessing from you. What a thing for a king to say. He's the king. 
that's who he is. And he's humble enough to say, there's no comparison. Who am I in this relationship? Secondly, he acknowledges God's glory. He says, you are great. There is no God like you. You are the one who has done all of these things for his people. His focus is not on himself, but his focus is on God's glory. Third, he prays for God's people. What a beautiful thing. It would have been so easy for David to say, yeah, but I wanted to do this, and I had this plan, and I had this idea, and I talked to Nathan, I, 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 I. And instead his focus is on, look, it's not just about me and the Lord, it's about God and his people. Surprise, surprise, God may have bigger plans than just you or me. He's humble, he's focused on God's glory, he's praying for God's people. Fourthly, he prays with faith. And I'm pulling that from that tail end of the prayer where he basically says, God, you said you're going to do it, do it. If that's what you're going to do, do it. I believe it. And I'm praying that you would keep your word. This is a beautiful way to pray. It's a model for our prayers. Look, you don't just see those things in David's life, in prayer life. You see them in Jesus' life. All of those things we just talked about in, the, in that prayer, you see them in Jesus especially at the end of his life. You see the humility. Can we put those four back up? Did the screens go out? There it is. He prays with humility. How about Jesus at the end of his life washing the disciples' feet? He's just a servant. He could claim to be the king, but he just chose to be a servant. He was content with that. Acknowledging God's glory. How about Jesus in John 17, praying just before the crucifixion, praying, Father, Glorify your son with the glory that he had with you before the world began. He's focused not just on the trial ahead of him, but on the glory of the Lord. Praying for God's people, John 17. He prays briefly about himself and God's glory, and then the whole prayer is about the disciples and the people who will believe because of the disciples. He's praying, and he's interceding for God's people, and he prays with faith. You see him in the garden sweating drops of blood saying, Look, not my plan. Not that way, your way. Your will be done. There's no other way, your will be done. And he prays with faith. And the big takeaway from this story, I really think is just the big takeaway from the entire Bible. You look at this story and David has a plan and God says no and David responds beautifully and there's a lesson for us in how we ought to respond. The bigger lesson is that even if God says no to our specific plans, He's the one taking care of us. He's the one working for us. He's the one saving us. And he really doesn't need us to do anything. And he's driving that home to David. David, I I don't need you to make me a house. I don't remember asking for it. Lived in this tent since we came out of Egypt. I don't need it. That's the big storyline of the Bible. I don't need you guys to do anything for me. I'm going to do it for you. That's what grace is. I'm not going to wait for you to pull your weight with me. I'm going to save you and be gracious to you. And my sovereign power is the one thing that's going to sustain you and protect you and in the end ultimately save you. So it's a great episode from David's life. David got the point. He got the big idea, and I'm praying that we do